All right. If y'all would, uh, open up with me in your Bible to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Uh, I want to give you some homework, because if you remember from last week, we ended at the end of chapter 7. So to make sure that you don't miss anything, uh, I, I want to ask you this week, or, or maybe even today, uh, to read verses or chapters 8, 9, 10, and then also 12, because 12 is tied in with this. Uh, but we're, we're going to deal with, with chapter 11 today, because it best sums up um, these chapters. As we remember that you know Hosea is filled with sermons that Hosea preached from God to the people of Israel. And so we're talking about God as a father today. Um, we're going to see how his, his love as a father to Israel drives him not just to, re, to, to be broken hearted over the judgment that's going to fall on Israel, but in the, the reality that he's going to save his people. And so I, I, want, us to, I want us to think for a few moments um, since it is Father's Day, it's probably a little appropriate, uh, about the importance of dads. And, and I want us to think, um, and I know this is dangerous sometimes, um, but, but I want us to look at dads in pop culture, okay? Just for a few moments, just, just, just give, me, give me a few seconds to, to kind of walk through ways dads have been represented, right? This is one of the first dads I remember from television. Um, and yeah, I'm a little young, so it was reruns, um, but you know, I, I loved the relationship between Andy and Opie, right? Um, I mean, he, he, uh, he was a good and gentle father, uh, but he wasn't a pushover, right? When, when Opie got into trouble, he got into trouble, um, but, but, you know, they were, they were passing baseball, they were going fishing. It, it was a good, loving fatherly relationship. I, I think the, the appropriate picture from my childhood to re represent this would be if you remember Danny Tanner from Full House, right? Very, very similar in, in, in parenting styles. Um, the next one, Homer, right? Um, I, I think Homer is, is your, your, when you think of a stereotypical American dad, Homer Simpson is who you think of, right? Um, he, he would much rather be at the bar or the bowling alley instead of with his wife and kids. Uh, a little neglectful, uh, very immature, right? I, I mean, this is, this is often how dads are displayed, um, not just in The Simpsons, but, but, but in movies and, and, and in other television shows. Um, there's lots of pictures of pop culture dads that we could have put up here, right? Um, but, but I think Homer uh, is, is, since it's a cartoon, they can go to more extremes to remind us of of, look, dads are important. And when dads are neglectful, it has an impact on the culture, right? The last one, and I think this is what's becoming more and more common in pop culture, but also in reality, is Phil Dunphy from Modern Family. He, is the, he talks all the time about how he wants to be the friend dad, right? And so it's hard for him to discipline. It's, it's hard for him uh, to, to, to really step in and do what needs to be done sometimes because he doesn't want to seem hard or overbearing. He wants his, his kids to look at him as friends. Now, I'll tell you something. I, my dad gave me some wisdom as I was entering fatherhood. He said, parent Reese, because she was the first one, right? He said, parent her to the point where she will be your friend when she's an adult, Right? Like, don't be her friend when she's 
you know, being disobedient, being disrespectful, doing the wrong things. Parent her so that when she's an adult, you will want to be her friend and she will want to be your friend. Right, and and so you know th- there are a lot of pitfalls with with the, the Phil Dunphy style of dad, um, but but it's a reality. Lots of lots of dads today and lots of parents uh, want to be friends with their 13 year old kids rather than their parents, or, and 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 that can be dangerous, right? So thinking about the importance of dads and thinking about the impact that they make on their children. We, we are going to move into um, thinking about Hosea chapter 11 and thinking about it well. And for us to do that, we have to remember that there is a larger story going on in the scriptures than just Hosea. So I want to very quickly remind you of that larger story which Hosea chapter 11 fits into. And so if you're taking notes, you may want to jot this down. Um, but but this is this is what's often called the meta the meta narrative of scripture the, the overarching story of scripture and and so if if, if you look at the screen uh, you'll see that that there are there's some some big moments within scripture uh, the first one is creation right God creates the universe and it's good He creates humans and we are we, we make creation very good. Um, and then, of course, the fall comes when, when Adam and Eve rebel in their sin. And then God calls for himself a country, a nation, right? That nation is Israel. And unfortunately, as we've seen uh, throughout Hosea, as, as God is bringing his judgment upon Israel and as he will also bring it upon Judah, it was a difficult relationship, right? God would make covenants with the nation of Israel and they would break those covenants, God wouldn't break the covenants, but Israel would. And so God begins in his prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And hopefully, as we'll see today, in Hosea himself, God begins to point to the fact that there is going to come a king who is better than David. There's going to come a prophet who is better than Moses. There is going to be the Messiah And so that is Jesus. And with Jesus comes the introduction of the kingdom of God, right? And and it begins with the church on earth. But we know that it's not complete until Jesus returns and we are resurrected. And then the kingdom has finally come, right? That's, That's the book of Revelation. And so this is the meta narrative of Scripture, the larger story. And we have to remember that Hosea fits into this, right? Hosea is, is really, it, it would fall in between country and king. So in Hosea, we're looking at the, the breaking apart of Israel and the beginning of the promise of the coming of Jesus. And so with, with this in mind, I want to give us very quickly uh, a summary of chapters 8, 9, and 10, and, and then we'll move into uh, the text. And so in chapter 8, God confronts Israel through Hosea that they have left God for their kings, for other countries, those two countries specifically being Egypt and Assyria, and then also and especially for, idol, for idolatry. They've left God for idols. And so in chapters 9 and 10, chapters 9 and 10 are are two of the the really hard chapters to read. So I will pray for you as you walk through them this week. Uh, But chapters 9 and 10 are where God promises to punish Israel. 
And listen, friends, we have to deal with this. God doesn't say, Israel, you've sinned, so I'm just going to leave you and whatever happens, happens. No, God brings punishment on Israel. God is clear that he's the one who's going to send the Assyrians. He is clear that he is going to bring destruction upon his people because of their sin and because of their covenant breaking. And so this leads us into chapter 11 where God reveals himself as their father. And so I want to give us a big idea to think about as as we walk through this chapter. And the big idea is this. God is a good and faithful father. Jesus is the faithful son who brings us in. God is a good and faithful father. Jesus is the faithful son who brings us in. God is going to bring judgment on Israel, but he reminds them and he reminds us that he is going to save his people. And fortunately for Gentiles, his people isn't just left to one nation, right? It includes us. And it includes us because of what Jesus did, because he is the faithful son who brought us in. So let's jump into the text. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. God says to Israel through Hosea, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. This is important and we're going to come back to it. But at the end of chapter 1 where he says, And out of Egypt I called my son, that is quoted by Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 to talk about Jesus. It is a direct quote of Hosea on purpose and I'll, I'll show you why a little bit later in the text. But This is God's reminder to his people that they have always spurned God's love and call while enjoying his salvation. Think about this. I mean, we could walk through the history of Israel and we could see it, right? But he says, listen, I have called you and I have loved you and yet you continue to push against me and to go to the Baals. So remember Exodus chapter 20. Right? Moses goes up on the mountain. God delivers the Ten Commandments to him. They have just seen. Think about what they've seen. They've seen the Red Sea split. They've seen Pharaoh and his armies drown in God's judgment in the Red Sea. They have seen God provide food to provide manna and quail for them in the mornings without them having to hunt it or grow it. And there have been multiple times when Moses has touched a rock and water has shot out. But as soon as Moses goes up on that mountain to get those commandments, they, they, they hear the thunder, they see the lightning, there's smoke all around that mountain. It is a majestic and, and honestly fearful time. And what do they do? They say, God must have killed Moses. What are we going to do? They build, they they take their gold, they melt it down, they build a calf out of it. And then Aaron stands there and says, this is the God that saved you out of Egypt. 
this statue. Think about the ridiculousness of that. Multiple times the prophets in the Old Testament say, you bow down to gods that you make with your own stuff and your own hands. You bow down to gods that you make. That should speak to our hearts too, right? We bow down to gods that we make. They They may not be idols shaped and hewn from stone or, or wood, but we look at our success, we look at our stuff, we look at our heroes that show up on our televisions or through our stereos, and we make gods out of them, right? But this is God reminding Israel, you, you have a we have a history of this. I save you and I love you and you enjoy the salvation and you run to your idols. So verses three through four. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Remember, Ephraim was one of the sons of Israel. Uh, he was, his, his tribe took, uh, took up residence in the northern part. And so oftentimes when God talks about Israel, he'll use the word Ephraim. Uh, it's, it's the, he's talking to the same people. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. There's a lot here, right? Um, God is, is, is sort of, he's using two illustrations at once. Um, you know, in, in, in verse three, he's, he's showing his, his fatherhood, right? He's reminding us that to Israel, God was a loving father and to his people throughout the ages, he is a loving father. He is the one who taught Israel how to walk. He's the one that saved them out of slavery in Egypt, set them up as a nation, gave them cities and wine presses and fields that they did not build or plant or or grow. And they were able to harvest from these things. They were able to live in these cities that they did not build. God is reminding them, I gave this all to you. And then he goes, and from the metaphor of fatherhood, going to the illustration of, of, a, of a man who is driving his cattle, right? And he says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. He's telling them, I wasn't some sort of brutal master to you. I didn't beat you with whips. I led you with gentleness, and when the yoke on your jaws became too heavy, I lifted them up to give you rest. We see here that God was a teacher to his people. He provided for them and he was lovingly and tenderly taking care of them. Men, I... I purposely don't preach on motherhood on Mother's Day because I don't want to make them feel bad and I don't want to, I want to try to walk around this without making you feel bad. But men, listen to me. If God, the creator of the universe, can be a tender father, so can you, right? We don't need to be John Wayne's all the time. It's good for us to be tender and affectionate with our kids and with our wives, right? So, 
take a glimpse of that, that picture of, 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 of raising the yokes off of the jaws. Do we want to raise tough kids? Absolutely. But tenderness can help lead to toughness. Verses 5 through 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. That is, they've refused to repent, okay? That's what he's saying there. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Friends, listen to me. Bent counsels lead to bent results. God is being very clear with Israel that because they have counseled with others and not with him, because they have gone to Assyria for help, and they have gone to Egypt for help. They have trusted in armies and chariots and horses. They have trusted in the might that they can see rather than the might that they cannot see. And because of this, they have turned their back on God. Because of their going to Assyria and because of their going to Egypt, they have bound They have bowed down to the gods of Assyria and to the gods of Egypt. They have continued to worship the gods of the Philistines that surround them. Because they have turned their back on God, the sword shall come against their city. They will be devoured by their own ignorance. I hate the end of verse 7. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Think about God's judgment there. He is saying to his people, you will pray to me and I will not answer. You will seek my face and I will be silent. In fact, he tells us that he's going to be the one that is leading the Assyrians in. And the difficulty of this passage is that Israel turns to God, not even as a last resort. Listen to me, friends. This is not a quick momentary repentance and faith and going to God and saying, please save us. The people of Israel have all at the same time, they go to Assyria and say, help us out. They go to Egypt and they say, help us out. They sacrifice animals to the Baals. They sacrifice, this is the hardest one. There was this God named Moloch and Moloch was the God of wealth and and prosperity And he required child sacrifice. So they were taking their own children, slitting their throats, and throwing them into fires to please this God. And they're doing all of that. And they're still going to Samaria and offering sacrifices to God. So it's this thing of, they they don't trust in God. They want to spread their trust out to everybody, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual buffet, just like what we do in America. Let me throw a little bit to Egypt and their gods, a little bit to Assyria and their gods, the Baals and Molech, and oh yes, God of Israel, the one who saved us. Here's our sacrifices for you. 
Friends, they're not crying out because of a repentance and God saying, no, it's too late for repentance. They're not repenting. They are continuing in their idolatry and on the side still worshiping God. You cannot do this. There's a reason that Jesus in his ministry and Paul in his letters are very forward and upfront. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, what we just left. He said, you cannot serve God and money. You'll either love one and hate the other. And I'm not just picking on money. You can put anything in there. You can't serve God and lust. You can't serve God and, and, and I mean, throw whatever sin you want in there. You cannot be like Israel and expect to be named as one who follows Jesus. Verses 8 and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in my wrath. So at first glance, this seems like God is changing his mind. He says, I'm bringing judgment. And then he says, wait, I, I can't. You're, you're my child. I can't do this. You can see the heartbreak over his wayward child. You can see the anguish of God in the first part of verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? And then he mentions these two cities, Adma and Zeboim. Adma and Zeboim were two cities that were close to Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were burned up with Sodom and Gomorrah when God brought his judgment on those two cities for their wickedness in the book of Genesis. And so God is, is telling them that he does not want to bring his full wrath upon them like he did with Sodom, with Gomorrah, with Adma, and with Zeboim. So instead, because of the fact that his heart recoils within him, because his compassion is growing warm and tender, this is God describing himself. Believer, remember this. When you are stuck in your sin, when you are feeling the guilt of your brokenness, when Satan is in your ear saying, he doesn't like you anymore, he hates you, the cross of Jesus isn't enough, you remind yourself that God is warm and tender and compassion. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, you are set free. But God says, because of this, he will hand them over to Assyria as grace, as something that they don't deserve. Instead of bringing sulfur and fire down from the skies like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah, he will not bring his full wrath to bear on Israel. He shows grace to them. 
by allowing Assyria to take them away. And friends, if this doesn't drive your eyes to the cross, I want to make sure we do that for a second. Because remember, it is on the cross of Jesus that no grace is shown. It is on the cross of Jesus that all of God's anger and wrath towards sin, all of that fury that was poured down on Sodom and Gomorrah, all of that anger towards wickedness that is, that is kept for you and for me, it went on Jesus on the cross. Friends, let that break your heart. Let that drive you to repentance and a fuller and deeper faith. God gave grace to Israel by not destroying them. And yet, on his own son, he let him hang on that cross and bleed to death for you. Verses 10 through 11. They shall go after their Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God will bring his kids safely home. The mention of doves from Assyria and birds from Egypt should take us back to chapter 7 where God calls his children of Israel dumb because he says they're like doves. They're just flying around and scattering, not knowing where to go. And so he uses it to insult them earlier, but here he says that they will come back to him. Coming from Egypt is, is a place of slavery, right? When the people of Israel hear Egypt, the first place they go is slavery. Coming to him from Assyria is captivity. Leaving the, 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 the reality of being a, a, a refugee of war. Friends, this is God calling all of his children home. That's why there's the mention of Egypt and the mention of Assyria. Is, that's where they will be. But that mention of from the west. right? If you go west from Israel, you know where you end up? You end up in the Mediterranean Sea. That coming from the west is a reminder that, that this, this ultimate reconciliation is not just for the people of Israel, but it's for all who will trust in the Lord. For those of us who trust in the Lord through Jesus. This is why it's so important that Matthew chapter 2 quoted Hosea 11, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Because one of the things that the New Testament presents us with is the, the reality that Israel was a son to God. It was a disobedient son that ran away. But there is a second and better Israel, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. 
And he didn't run away. He was faithful. And his faithfulness stood in the place for all who would trust in him. So when, when chapter 11 and, or verses 10 and 11 talk about God's people coming back to him, it envisions all of those who were broken by sin and slavery and captivity, but have been set free by the Lord, they will return to him. This has in mind the new Jerusalem. The, the, the Eden that we're told about in the book of Revelation. This is why we needed that reminder of the grand story before we jumped into this text. I want us to read very quickly. You don't have to flip there, just listen, but you may want to write this down in your notes. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul says this to the church in Colossae. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. <coughs> For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul mentions twice that Jesus is the firstborn. Right? First he's the firstborn of all creation, and then he's the firstborn of the church. The firstborn from the dead. This is to remind us that Jesus sits as the perfect son that Adam was not. And he sits as the perfect son that Israel was not. And it is because he was born, he lived and he died, he made peace by the blood of the cross. Friends, God, God's wrath is spared from you if you trust in that peacemaking blood shed by Jesus. We finish with verse 12 and, and the first verse in chapter 12. Ephraim was surra has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Friends, you can, you can claim affiliation and be wrong. You can claim affiliation and be wrong. Israel lied about God's name. They lied about his character. And it's funny that Judah is mentioned here, right? Judah is mentioned as faithful, but it's only for now. Because if you read chapter 12, which I told you to do, you'll see that like Jacob in Genesis and like Israel and Hosea, Judah is going to stumble because of their pride also. Judah will need to be redeemed by Jesus just like Israel and the rest of us. But God talks about how they, they eat the wind and they chase the wind. Friends, you know what the wind brings. It brings dust. There's nothing to eat in the wind 
And you know from the book of Ecclesiastes what it means to chase the wind. You can't catch it and you won't get anything from it even if you could. Israel is running after broken wells. Israel is full of lies and greed. Death is the fruit of what they're growing. And the worst thing is their allegiance to Assyria and Egypt. They are not being faithful in their trust in God. And ultimately, right, not only are they pledging allegiance to these nations, but that oil is being carried to Egypt that is not motor oil, right? I I hope you know that. Cars are nowhere near being invented. Tanks, jets, none of that. The oil that is being carried is olive oil, right? It was was a sweet commodity, um, and it was something that that, that Israel was well known for, but it it was a payment, right? They were sending olive oil to Egypt for Egypt's protection because they trusted more in the chariots than in God. This reminder here to Israel is what Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, God's judgment is a real and true thing. And just because you were born into a home that loved Jesus, just because you go to a church that loves Jesus, that doesn't mean anything if you don't love Jesus. God is a good and faithful father. And Jesus is the faithful son who brings us in. This is good news, but it's good news that requires repentance and humility and faith. And so I want to talk very quickly as we finish up to three types of people in this room. I don't do this very often, but but I, I want each of us to be confronted The first one is to the skeptic, okay? You're sitting here, you've heard this, you're not sure where you stand, you're not sure where you believe. I wanna confront you with something here, okay? It's easier to believe in God's justice than his grace. It's easier to see that God, if he really exists, and if he is truly just and righteous and good, he will not allow sin to go unpunished, God cannot be considered good if he allows evil people to do evil things and get away with it. So it's easy to see his justice. It's easy to see his anger on Israel. What's harder to understand is his grace. But friends, here's where God's grace gets him the most glory. You and I are sinful broken enemies of God left on our own. But because of his work in his son, Jesus Christ, 
because of the perfectly obedient life that he lives, because of the sacrificial death on the cross that we deserved, but he took, and because of his resurrection three days later, God saves a people for himself. And that people that he saves will worship him for eternity. And so God gets the most glory from those who are changed radically by the good news of Jesus. Skeptic, it's easy to understand God's justice. It's hard to understand his grace. But you can see his grace in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Stop being skeptical. Turn from your sins and believe. Now to the fence sitter, I want to ask you a question. Are you trusting in you or are you trusting in Jesus? Are you banking on you to do the right thing or are you trusting in Jesus being the better Adam, being the better Israel, being the faithful one who brings us in with him? Friend, you cannot do it alone. Stop. Stop dipping your toes into the church and thinking maybe, maybe not. Dive in with complete trust in Christ. Believer, are you a happy or begrudging child of God? Are you a happy or begrudging child of God? And here's, here's why I ask that. The gospel is on beautiful display in Hosea chapter 11, right? We see God's love. We see his tenderness. We see his compassion. But for some of us, as we've, as we've followed Jesus throughout the years, we've, we've seen growth in our life, and maybe we haven't seen the hand of God as much as we would like. Right? Maybe some prayers haven't been answered. Maybe, maybe there's some frustrations with, with, uh, with what's going on in your life, maybe with what's going on at the church. Lord knows there might be some frustrations with your pastor, right? Okay? But are you looking at those things as reasons to begrudge God, as reasons to be like, well, I mean, I'm your child, I believe in Jesus, but I think you could be doing a better job here, God, right? I mean, is, is that where you are? Because I, I want to encourage you to see where you would be apart from Christ. Even if you are saved and then you have the worst life ever, right? Even if, even if you're saved and then you have the life of Job without the end of Job's story, right? Without the restoration of, of children and things. Um, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? There's a moment in the Psalms where David is being uh, surrounded and attacked by Saul and, and his men. And, and David pins this psalm, and he, he says that God is his portion. Right? I mean, you know what that means, right? That God is who he gets, and that is enough. Friends, I want to encourage you to be a happy child in the Lord, no matter your circumstances. No matter your... I, I want to... 
I don't want to treat y'all like a confessional, but I, I, I need to for one second. So I was talking with my mentor, my, my doctoral mentor, uh, on Friday. And, um, and, and I was, I was kind of walking through, uh, it, it's just, I think most of y'all know, like the first two weeks out of, out of school is insanity, right? So the DeHart household has been kind of insane. And, um, and there's been a lot of, it's been a lot of snappiness in our home. Um, not, not in a good, well-dressed way, but in like a snapping turtle at each other, right? Um, and, and I made a comment about just, like, it's so hot, you know? Like, on top of the kids being out of school, I mean, it's, it's hot, right? And he said, well, Andy, your circumstances can't define your happiness in the Lord. And man... And I've told y'all that before, right? Like, I've, I've said those words. And to hear them from his mouth and just to be reminded, um, Jesus is enough. He is. And, and if we don't see him as enough, it's, it's one of two things. Either we're not saved, but I don't think that's it for, for y'all. I mean, if, if you're a begrudging child right now, I mean, I know most of y'all, and I, I believe you are his. So it's not that. It's that your picture of Jesus is defective, right? And the reason it's defective is probably because you're not spending enough time with him. You're not, you're not seeing him for who he is. Or maybe you've just got an inflated sense of yourself and you think you're the bee's knees once again and you just need to be reminded you're not the center of the universe, right? You're not that awesome. You are a sinner who was under the judgment and wrath of God who has been saved from that. And maybe you just need that reminder. But friends, I, I want to encourage you to be happy in the Lord because of the cross and the resurrection. So with that confession, let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for the correction of your word. And God, I, I thank you for the ministry of Hosea. I thank you for uh, the preaching that you accomplished through him. Uh, God, this has been, as, as I've studied this book, it's, it's been, it stretched me, Father. And, and today was, it is a mixture of bad news and good news. The fact that your, your wrath can be upon people who do not know you as their Lord, um, that breaks my heart. But the goodness of the call of compassion and tenderness and love found ultimately in our crucified and risen King Jesus. God, we are so thankful for that. And so, Father, I pray that as we, as we rest in the good news and, and as we enjoy the good news, um, that we would, we would rejoice in who you are and in what you've done through your Holy Spirit, and through your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, friends, it's time for us to respond. If you're an unbeliever, you've heard